Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's a nightmare to many, but a dream to others. Imagine, what would the United States look like without Roe v. Wade? Alexis McGill Johnson has been preparing for that possibility. She was named president and CEO of Planned Parenthood this June. In September, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And today, a judge who is RBG's polar opposite will begin testifying before the Senate to take her seat on the Supreme Court. Judge Amy Coney Barrett is a favorite among conservatives, especially those who want to overturn the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision to legalize abortion in all states. Amy Coney Barrett is a devout Roman Catholic and social conservative opposed to abortion. Unlike Ginsburg, Barrett is a committed conservative. The federal appeals court judge, well-liked by the president, key Republicans, and many on the religious right. So Johnson must marshal her forces, not only to try to block Barrett, but also to figure out a game plan for the judge's possibly inevitable appointment. That will require a new power playbook from Johnson, who is well-equipped for such a battle. She was a former professor of political science at Yale, and she co-founded the Perception Institute, an anti-bias organization. And now she's at the helm of the country's largest, most politically powerful provider of abortions and other reproductive health care. That's some timing for a new job. So you took over earlier this year and you had the good or bad luck that you took over right now running Planned Parenthood at the moment when Roe v. Wade was more likely than ever to be overturned. What does that feel like? It feels absolutely daunting, um, but I will also say it's work that we've been preparing for for a long time. I mean, I've been on the board since 2011, and during that time, we had obviously a lot happening with the gerrymandering, Congress, all of the restrictions that we've seen in the state legislatures over the last decade. So it's both daunting but familiar, I guess is how best I would say it. Where do you put it at, the threat right now from your perspective? Now, you're you're running sort of one of the most high-profile organizations related to it. How, how does the threat feel to you right now? I mean, it feels imminent. Having a 6-3 majority of justices who are very hostile to abortion rights feels very eminent. But I also would say that we've been living in this reality in many states across the country, right? There are at least five states that have just one provider. So the right exists without access. And that's what we're fighting for every day, too. So, you know, a lot of people are worried about the future of abortion access around the country, but unlike most of those people are in a position of power to do something about it. So when you first heard the news about Amy Coney Barrett was the nominee, what was the first thing you did? Well, I was actually still in mourning Justice Ginsburg when I first heard the news, right? I mean, and I was thinking about the fact that we had this extraordinary justice who did everything to help us around access to gender, like literally give us the right to do what we're doing right now, sitting here 
in a house, owning my own mortgage and all of that. So, you know, the idea, the first thing that I thought about was the fact that this is a judge who would be coming in and and literally standing on the shoulders of this great giant and trying to take away everything that she has fought for. You know, and the second thing that we did is what we always do is we've been in scenario planning for quite a minute and we started to organize and activate. So who did you call? Who did you call first? We talked to our team. We started calling our electeds. We started calling uh, Senator Murray, who has been a huge champion on the Hill for us. We started talking to Leader Schumer. We started talking to our coalition partners across the reproductive rights spectrum. We started getting in calls from folks around the movement space saying, what can we do? Right. And I think that that, to me, is um, actually is what has given me hope and carried me through the last few weeks. The fact that we have such an organized kind of outside movement that is helping support and give bolster to the, I would say, the inside game. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the inside game, because a lot of people feel that you won't be able to defeat Barrett in this, that this will be rushed through whatever the outcome of the election. Talk specifically about the planning. Like, did you say that? Like, we're probably not going to win this one, but this is what we have to do. Or are you in this mode of, hey, maybe we can? I think you never know. I think that we didn't know what would happen around Justice Kavanaugh either, right? But we knew we had to fight. And I think that is first and foremost, that we have to actually fight. And I think the optics on the really intense focus on a power grab of this seat at a moment when people are going to the polls and they are in the process of considering who they want to represent them, who they want to make a decision about the next justices. Uh, We felt really strong to make our voices heard. And I think the other piece of it is really kind of giving a different kind of direction, right, and a different framing of this, right? This isn't about Judge Barrett at this point. This is about the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic. We are in the middle of a time where the Senate's focus should be on COVID relief, on COVID testing, on helping us around Zoom schooling, (laughs) for all that matter. And here they are rushing through a nomination and basically trying to take the the bird in the hand. And and I think highlighting that power grab has been really important. Now, tell me why that is, because I was thinking that I first thought that, oh, how hypocritical. And they played the Lindsey Graham tapes over and over again. It doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? I thought, well, it doesn't matter because they're going to do it anyway, because this is a group of people that said, so what, essentially. Why frame it as a power grab? What's the good if it goes through anyway, from your perspective? Because I think this this is the people's seat. I think a Supreme Court justice is the people's seat. And I do think that it is important in a democracy to all be playing by the same rules. And I think it is important to continue to highlight the ways in which particularly Senator McConnell and his cronies have continued to shift the rules of the game at every turn. And it is really important for Americans to know that. So do you think a big fight over Barrett is good for Democrats at the polls? You do think that? Because it's not like it's not like Mitch McConnell is going to go, oh, yes, I am hypocritical. I'll stop. Oh, yes. I thank you for pointing that out. It, it, it's good at the polls. Yes, I do think there's a connection between having a conversation around what is at stake in this election, rushing through this nominee who is completely out of step with the will of the American people, and asking people to consider that when they are at the polls and saying, is that the kind of leadership that we want for the next four years? Okay. So conservatives have been laser-focused on the Supreme Court for a long time. When you look back, do you think progressives have dropped the ball on looking at that? Or is it they've been laser focused on this in the courts and also chipping away in state legislatures? What would you, if you could go back, have done differently? I think they had a unique opportunity in 2010, right? So I, I kind of, I, I don't like the question, 
Okay. Because right. okay. <laughs> I, well, I, think, I think we're like framing this as like they've been laser focused on the court and the Democrats and liberals have never cared about the court. I don't think that's true. Okay. Well, tell me why. Tell yeah, me why. I think what happened is that the rules changed in 2010 through a very skilled process, and I give it up to them, a very skilled process around transforming our redistricting and, and, and through a process of gerrymandering, right, which is also a power grab. And that they've used that to flip all of these state legislatures, which in turn have ushered in any number of, you know, almost 500 restrictive bans against abortion. So I definitely, the play has been largely on the state legislatures. And I think our vehicle at the time had been the courts. I mean, that was our stopgap. That was our measure to kind of stop some of the most harmful restrictions. And now that is kind of the intersection of how we are now, what, 17 cases that are, you know, a case away or step away from the Supreme Court. Talk about one of them. Talk, yeah. explain to people. Right. So a, like a, a six-week ban that we saw in 2019 in, in Georgia, which would mean that after six weeks, the abortion would be illegal in that state. So, you know, I just like take, I've You've heard my two kids running around. You know, one of them, I didn't know I was actually pregnant until week seven and a half, almost week eight. And so the idea that I've now become a criminal at a point where I'm just finding out about my pregnancy. So what would happen is that if if Roe falls or if it is gutted so irrevocably, what that means is that in some states, people will be able to make those choices about are they going to start their family? Are they going to expand their family? What will that look like for them? And in other states, they will be forced into pregnancy if they don't have the resources to get out of state. And the impact of that is like roughly 25 million women who will be living in states that will have these uh, restrictions on the books. So that's the reality of what we're of what we're up against. That's what we are obviously highly concerned about. Now, a lot of people, uh, there just was a, a piece in the New York Times by Joan Williams, uh, said Roe was already lost. 90% of American counties do not have access to abortion. There's a group of people who talk, overrule it and move on and move on to the next fight. Do you think like that? I think that the fight will happen in the states. I think that is the work that we were doing. I think that's the energy we are already seeing. Mm -hmm. After Justice Kavanaugh, for example, was confirmed, we saw the state legislatures flip in Virginia. We saw we got a Kentucky governorship and those very restrictive bans um, were overturned. And we now have a licensed provider in Kentucky. So I think that the majority of Americans believe that Roe should be the law of the land. And it really is about the balance of power in those states and who controls. And right now, as I um, said before, a vocal minority controls the levers of power. And that is where the work needs to happen. Roe eliminates federal protection. But I think that the question is really like, how do we continue to organize state by state and ensure that organizing about what, what possibility and imagination looks like in those states is for people so they understand what's at stake? Well, getting back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she did talk a lot about this, that there was a movement toward states doing this. Roe sort of got the anti-abortion groups fired up. Do you imagine that it creates an opportunity for you? Is it a political opportunity? Yeah, I think what she was saying is that the case was ahead of popular opinion. And what I'm saying is that popular opinion is now ahead of the number of cases. And that what is lagging behind is the way in which the power structures in each state or in the states where access to abortion is more vulnerable is where we need to shift and focus. You know, states like Virginia and Kentucky, they they aren't the bluest of states, right? So the idea that this is where people are organizing 
I think is also portends well for the kind of work that we need to do in states that will continue to look similarly. But do you think it's a political opportunity to reset that idea if the popular opinion is there? Yes, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, so when you say political opportunity, what I hear is an opportunity to build power. And so, yes, I believe it is an opportunity to build power because I think that's where the majority um, of public opinion already exists. I think people understand what it looks like in their own personal experiences. I think that when you have one in four women who have had an abortion in their lifetime, many more of us know a woman who has, and almost 60% of Folks have had abortion already mothers. So I do feel like the the will and the organizing is on the side and, and the momentum is on that side for sure. And if Roe is overturned, what do you do the next day? So we've been planning for a world where Roe could be further gutted, right? And, and I think Roe has always been the floor. And so we've always been working to improve access and support people seeking abortion to get to places where they, they could get them. We saw this just in COVID, right? And I think that actually tested a lot of our assumptions about the kind of planning and work that we were doing. Mm-hmm. As soon as we started sheltering in place, we've got governors uh, across the country, many of whom have the same trigger laws on the books, who used executive order to restrict access. And then we saw patients leaving states like Texas, driving 18 hours up to Colorado, throwing their kids and their moms in the car, you know, in some cases just to get access to medication abortion. So the planning in terms of care is the same. It's the same work that we've been doing. And I think we've always known that this election, even if we got the Senate, which I hope we do, and even if we win the White House, which I hope we do, was never going to be a neat election because of the number of cases that are in the courts. Um, At the same time, we are also preparing in the states to demonstrate what that transformation state by state would look like. Okay. Could Congress constitutionally pass a national abortion law before we get to the states? And from your perspective, what would it say? Is that even something you're thinking about? Yeah, there is a law that uh, called the Women's Health Protection Act that a number of um, senators have signed on to, which would offer federal protection. So if Roe fell, it would offer federal protection and it cre- actually really create a standard of care for abortion services that would reduce those bans and restrictions, particularly in the states that would essentially ban abortion. So it would actually supersede and create those laws. So it would protect access to abortion in those states. Are you putting a lot of effort into doing something like this, a national a national abortion law? Yeah, I mean, Planned Parenthood, along with our partners at the Center for Reproductive Rights and other reproductive rights organizations are certainly supporting WIPA, as it's affectionately called. We're also fighting what Congress could do today, which is repeal Hyde, which limits federal assistance for abortion care. And, you know, and I think that would that would be among the, the first asks, if not the first ask of a uh, Biden-Harris administration. Mm-hmm. So I think it is important for us to be creative about how we think about ensuring the standard of care around abortion and ensuring access. And I think those two laws both focus on right and access, and that's important. I just interviewed Nancy Post, and she said that when Donald Trump had the House and had the Senate, he could have passed a law of his own, and he didn't. And he'd rather sort of gin up the base to get upset about it, about not having it. Were you surprised they didn't do that? No, I'm not surprised. I think he is uh, forecast at every turn that that he is going to follow the will of his base. I think we saw that in his appointments with Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and now Barrett. I think that he is um, very clear. And it's interesting. I mean, we've talked to our supporters in 2016 who were Obama-Trump voters who supported Planned Parenthood, right? Which is like a unique universe in itself. Yeah. And they, um, you know, they 
did not believe that Trump was going to. They thought a lot of what he was saying was, you know, he was just saying it just to get elected or just to gin up his base. Uh, And they did not believe that he would actually lean into policies around it. And I think that the fact that he has in this way has been very indicative of where he's been leading. What uh, Speaker Pelosi was talking about is nothing explicit that was very clearly this. They never passed an anti-abortion law, for example, as you might have a national abortion law that that provided access. They never took the big step either. No, they didn't. I mean, I'm, I, I think that they have been focused largely on the judges project to protect a long-term, again, institutional power in the judiciary. And that is largely where their focus has been, much to the detriment of abortion rights, obviously. Of course, Planned Parenthood provides services like testing, cancer screening, access to contraceptives, very critical thing, I think. What is the plan if the Affordable Care Act is overturned? The Supreme Court is about to hear a challenge to it in, on November 10th, actually. Um, it's unclear if a new justice will be seated by then. And it's, I mean, she's been negative towards it in previous writings. So what is the plan? We continue to provide access to care and we try to do um, as best we can. We don't turn any way who cannot afford to pay for care. Uh, I think it will be what we will miss if the Affordable Care Act is overturned or ruled unconstitutional is we will miss getting our pre-existing conditions covered. We're going to miss the fact that Mm -hmm. we don't have to pay more for our health care as women than men do. We're going to miss that our birth control is not covered, that our pregnancy, labor and delivery is not covered. Like, I think there are things that are really critical that impact more than Planned Parenthood. And, um, you know, as healthcare providers, those are the conversations that we have to have about the impact across the country for Americans. Now, Trump has been one of the worst times for Planned Parenthood, big legal setbacks, but you've also seen a big fundraising boom for not just you, but lots of groups. Have you set some of that money aside for people if people slow down donations and if they think, oh, we've got it back? Look, I think that, as I mentioned, the election is not the only determination around access to abortion. So the work that we are doing to help build both build an infrastructure if one of these cases does do something to overturn or gut row significantly, we still need an infrastructure to help support people who need access and, and working with our partners in the in the movement to do that. Um, I also think that flying people across the country to get access to abortion is not a future state. So the work is, how do we use the resources and build to 2030, you know, to take advantage in this decade to do that work state by state? Mm-hmm. So the, the legislative fight for abortion rights is, is going to be a mess that you want. Are there any, what trade-offs do you expect you are going to have to make around late term, parental notification, hospital admitting privileges? Do you imagine that there will be trade-offs or is there no thank you on any of these things? Um, there's a no thank you on on any of those things. I think that I, I think that what we are talking about is whether someone can make a decision to have an abortion and whether or not the state should be involved in that decision. And we believe it should be left to the person, their partner, their medical doctor and their pastor or other folks that they want to bring into that decision. But it shouldn't be made by a group of largely white men and state legislatures or federal government across the country. Mm -hmm. But when you go into these places, I mean, all legislation does undergo that. Are you thinking these trade-offs might have to happen or is this absolutely not? This This is what we want and this is what we're going to get. 
I think I think it's what we've seen in these state legislature fights is to uh, a repeal of these onerous restrictions that that are they're not grounded in anything that's medically necessary, right? I think that we have to start there. No, they're designed to stop abortions. They're, they're designed to criminalize and and stigmatize and shame providers and shame people seeking abortion. And so so why would we give anything into something that is just going to stigmatize a very safe medical procedure and give someone an opportunity to determine when and where they become a parent. And so is it more about an electoral strategy or sort of a hearts and minds thing versus an electoral strategy? So, I mean, I think it's, I I think the electoral strategy is the legislative strategy, right? So I'm kind of um, putting those things together, but I definitely feel like there is, there is a cultural strategy around fighting the stigma that, that would bring people continuing to bring them in more robustly into the space. I think that the majority We've made a lot of progress, both in public opinion in terms of where people are vis-a-vis access to abortion. We've even seen Black communities. There's a Gallup poll about the last decade of of increased support among Black communities. So I, I think that the public opinion is there. I do think we need to have the normalization that comes through culture. Sure. So talk about that. What does that strategy look like? Give me an example. You know, it looks like Kerry Washington on Scandal. Right. Having an abortion, going home, having a glass of red wine, nothing crazy. She does that with everything, but <laughs> right. that's, which actually she kills makes it normal. people and then does that. She topples governments and does that. So, well, so it's, it's part of her normalization. Right. But I do. I think that it is. It's part of the, the, the stories that are that are out there telling about the real choices that people are making and how they go on to live their lives. And I think that storytelling is obviously a, has been a, a key part of, of so many cultural movements and shifting. And I think that this is part of how we do that as well. When you think about it, do you think it's been effective or do you, you you've seen the gay rights movement go through it? You've seen uh, all kinds of movements go through that. Look, I think it can be normalized and stigmatized at the same time, right? I, I don't think that we actually just fully shift how our brains have been um, imprinted on. Support for abortion is mainstream. Like 77% is not, we're talking about, again, a vocal minority who is in the opposition, even if they have a significant amount of power. We also have the normalization of just knowing people, right? I think that was also a key piece of the of the gay rights movement. It was just knowing people in your family and your church at work and, and so forth that, that helped tell those stories and form the basis of what should have always been rights. And I think the more we tell our stories and normalize those stories of how people's experiences have shaped them, I think it becomes more of a way that people understand, like, not every pregnancy ends in the same way. Do you feel that the the anti-abortion groups have been good at storytelling? So their story, I think, is that there's another moral consideration beyond the life of the body of the mother. I think that's their story they tell. Well, that's, I guess, I guess that's her story. So yeah, I, I don't really actually, I can't tell you what their actual story is. I think that, that they have a very, they, they couch it in a very strong religious moral objection, but beyond that, that is not an actual story. And I think what we've seen, what our patients have seen, right? We had one who is in Louisiana who talked about how she was taken advantage of by stories, but sent to crisis pregnancy centers. And they kept walking her through story after story, but they weren't offering, they weren't really offering her support. And so I don't think the stories actually carried traction with the people who were seeking access or who have made their own decisions. And so I'm not sure that the stories are winning. I think the power building is one. We'll be right back. 
there's danger out there. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My name is Thomas Gibbsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Planned Parenthood has an annual budget of over $1 billion. It's by far the most well-funded organization of its kind in the U.S. But some smaller clinics and nonprofits have criticized it for taking up too much space. Last year, after Alabama passed a restrictive abortion law, donations came pouring in to Planned Parenthood. More than a million dollars, some of it donated from an Ariana Grande concert. But a clinic in Tuscaloosa, the West Alabama Women's Center, got much less attention. It raised just $4,000. The head of that group said it wasn't even able to afford a fence to keep protesters off the property or to pay its staff adequately. How do you think about supporting smaller groups and smaller coalitions? Because that's really where a lot of the work gets done at the on-the-ground local organizations where a lot of this is going to be fought out. Look, I think that Planned Parenthood does have a lot of work to do to show up differently inside of the ecosystem, for sure, and that we are part of a vast ecosystem of, of people who provide sexual and reproductive health care across the country. We do have health centers in every state. And so that National presence and engagement does give us a different level of power, but a lot of the work that I've been doing, particularly since I stepped in last year, has been to theorize and operationalize around what, what does it mean to use power to grow power? How do we use our platform differently to ensure that we are part of strengthening the movement organizations who are doing this work on the ground? We just partnered to bring attention on behalf of Project South and Sister Song in Georgia around what was happening in the detention center there. So I do think that we are building that muscle. It has taken us a little bit longer than than I would have liked as a board member, but I think that we are doing that work. I, I want you to explore this because you mentioned race and a lot of the big women's groups were founded by and for upper middle class white women. That's certainly true of Planned Parenthood. How are you working to move on from that legacy? I think like all hundred and plus year old organizations, there is a, there's a racial reckoning happening and um, there is no organization, there's no institution that is more than a hundred years old, um, even some who are younger, quite younger, that is not grounded in some notions of white supremacy and patriarch misogyny. That is just the, that's part of the founding of our nation. And, and that has started with obviously our conversations around 
our our founder and not just there, other other decisions. This is Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood founder. She, her views on race and her advocacy was undeniably rooted in eugenics. And I think the New York chapter distanced itself from her. Let's talk a little bit about this. Yeah, I think that's the work that I, I spent the decade before this working on. And so I'm I'm extremely passionate and excited about how to leverage this moment to make sure that we are we're doing that the right work. Well, can you talk more specifics? Because you said, you know, we're going to use power to build power, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Um, Talk about it in this with your own organization. Give me a specific example of what you think needs to happen within the organization. Planned Parenthood looks at this work through the lens of our patients. And I think that is, that's just a really important grounding feature for us. So people may come to us for sexual and reproductive health, gender affirming care, Mm -hmm. uh, abortion, Testing, STI testing, which has skyrocketed over the pandemic. Um, And they may leave and be worried that ICE is going to show up at their job. They may be worried they get pulled over by a police officer. They may be experiencing economic insecurity or food insecurity. And so the, the ways in which we have to engage, it can't just be around access to abortion rights. Um, I think that that is a way for us to start thinking about how do we how do we not be transactional in our relationships a lot of coalition building i think just by definition is temporary because you come together in movements you work together to get a candidate elected or a policy elected or beat down some bad bill and then you go back to doing whatever you're doing and i think what's happening now is and, and a lot of work that that we're deeply involved in is trying to think through how do we really build and sustain an infrastructure at the intersection so we are um, not always leading the conversation, following leadership, so that we are able to grow power together. So when you think of Inside Plant Parenthood itself, how do you address that as the leader now? What are your tools that you use to address this? So... Each affiliate is run independently by their own uh, CEO. They have their own independently elected boards. They are incorporated separately. And so, um, but we are, you know, in a federation and affiliated with each other. And so we come together in community and have conversations around the big things that are facing our, um, you know, their ability to provide care in community and our ability to help defend access to that care. And so I think as a, you know, as a, as a Black woman and, and as someone who has been deeply immersed in equity work and work around bias and racial anxiety, the tools that I brought in have been that understanding of, of literally how our brains and bodies process mm-hmm. identity differences and the, the kinds of practices that help us do it differently. And that is everything from what's the best practice around managing and navigating a patient-provider relationship? What does it look like in how we might think about diversifying our donor base? And what does it look like in partnership and community? So now your predecessor, Lena Wen, was ushered out the door. The conventional wisdom was that it was because she wanted to stop being so associated with resistance to Donald Trump and instead emphasize Planned Parenthood's role as a community health care provider. People might not realize this, but Planned Parenthood has two separate organizations. One's a political organization. The other is a health organization separately. Do you consider yourself a political organization or a health care organization first? I think it's just a false dichotomy. I, I, okay, we tell are, me why. We, we are first and foremost a health care provider, right? We provide health care to two and a half million patients every year. The kinds of health care that we provide is under attack. And so, so we are politicized right. 
for the politicization of the healthcare, right? And so I, I think it's hard to separate them. I do think it's really important, though, to see that at every time we start to advance and serve communities, that that we get the blowback and the and the pushback from organizations who don't want to see that care delivered. And so I think that's our unique muscle, quite frankly, that being a healthcare provider, but also pushing back and making sure that the healthcare can be provided. And that's what people mm-hmm. expect of us. Okay. Well, I, I want to get the difference. You know, you had Cecile in charge for a while, and then Ms. Wen, I think a lot of people were confused about what happened. Maybe you could explain it. I'm not at liberty to talk about the board's decision. I served on the board at the time. I think there was just a mismatch in leadership. It had nothing to do with whether or not we were too political or focused. That's what Mm -hmm. I would say. All right. Joe Biden, of course, is better for you than the alternative. But what's your sense of where he lands when it comes to abortion rights? Again, he used to support the Hyde Amendment, as did many. Do you think his change of mind was also a change of heart? I think it was it was also a change in the power dynamic, right? So I'm, I'm kind of young enough in Planned Parenthood to remember when our endorsement didn't matter, when people weren't seeking it. And I think that people are now seeking access to, to the endorsement, but are also listening to us when we say, we can't endorse you unless you are going to say you repeal Hyde. And so his, his shift was one of evolution, but I believe it was also one of being pushed on by organizations like Planned Parenthood. And being on the debate stage and having to have that pivot, I do think he will be a strong reproductive champion. I've certainly felt as though even in the way he has talked about his faith and his belief, he's been very clear that he didn't believe that it should, that his belief should be the determining reason for governing someone else's body. And so I I, I believe the Biden-Harris administration will be good for our movement. And what if Donald Trump wins? What do you do? So I think that it's it's really the same fight. The question is, where's our energy going to be drawn for? The work is the same. We still have to figure out how to go state by state and ensure um, access to sexual and reproductive health care. I will say what we won't see, mm-hmm. what we won't see is people not seeking access to abortion, mm-hmm. right? We're going to see, because we saw that, right, in COVID. Like people, if they determine that that's what's right for their family, for their lives, they will pursue it and we will be there right alongside them, helping them gain access. All right. Polls show that anti-abortion voters are much more likely to only vote for anti-abortion candidates than the other way around. How can Planned Parenthood get America's pro-choice majority to vote on the issue? And why doesn't this issue galvanize pro-choice voters the same way as it galvanizes voters on the right? Again, I think we are far more uh, intersectional in the way we think about issues, right? That it's not just about access to abortion rights. We are in the middle of healthcare is on the line, race is on the line, policing, all of these things that matter to- Climate change. uh, Yes, the world is literally on fire. So it is hard to hold uh, a single issue on this, but it doesn't mean that they're they're less intense about uh, support. But do you, you, is there any way to galvanize them on this issue or does it take setbacks? Like, like th- that could happen with a court. I think that people have been galvanized on the issue. I think it is a little misleading. I think that's why we have some of the wins that we've seen in Virginia. It's why we have the Reproductive Health Act, because people have been galvanized around building that power and really focusing on the legislation. We wouldn't have the legislation if we didn't have people galvanizing around the issue. Let's be clear. I mean, at every turn, we got um, the Affordable Care Act, but we had to push to ensure that birth control was covered in it, right? So, so the galvanizing is there. It just doesn't mean that it's to the exclusion of everything else. Right. I, the, the only thing I'm not trying to push here, but recent polling found that Gen Zers are rank abortion below other issues like mass shootings, climate change, education. 
So you want to, to make them think or, or know that it's an urgent issue. And I'm not saying push out the other issues. And you're right. They're thinking about lots of other things when one group is thinking about solely one thing. And that seems to be the case. But how do you make it more urgent? You know, look, I mean, I say this to someone who I was born in 1972. I'm as old as Roe. It was not something that was top of mind when I was growing up, the the limitation and access to it because it was there. And I do think that the storytelling, the um, what is happening when we are at a moment when, you know, it it is under the, the most threat that we've ever seen will be a galvanizing you know, issue people will begin to understand more about what's happening. They will hear the stories of their friends in the same way that that created momentum in the 60s and 70s. So I do think that we are at that moment, that crisis moment, where people will see what's at stake and they will engage. I think it's it's not just that they are seeing it inside of a collection of issues. It's the same states, right? The same states who have the stand your grand laws are the same states who are restricting access to abortion. They're the same states who are having the voter ID laws, you know, restrictive. So there's a layering on of issues because of the way the power has been constructed and built inside of those states. And that is what we are up against. It's not about public opinion, I don't think, in the same way. Um, When you were asked your main piece of advice to young activists, you said, have a theory of change. What's yours? I think in this moment, there's an assumption that power is finite. The theory about building power Mm -hmm. has to be to use the power that we have to grow power. And I think that is a radical difference of how we grow more aligned and proximate to other movements and engage in being able to carry each other's water regardless of who is in front of us, who we are lobbying in Congress or who we are talking to in a, you know, in a church basement or a a barbershop. I think it is important for us to be able to connect the dots between reproductive rights and the economy and race and uh, immigration and climate and healthcare because these are the things that are fundamentally affecting the lives of our patients. And I think the only way that we stay relevant and that this movement continues to not get caught in a place where people think that it's just been settled or we're just now in the States is to continue to to build that, that alignment across movements. And I think that's a really key piece of work. All right. Thank you so much, Alexis. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Adam Teicholtz and Paula Schumann. With music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Lauren Kelly, Emma Goldberg, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get a new episode of Sway delivered to you, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Listening.